Welcome to episode 256. There's been a lot of criticism over kids and digital addiction, but according to Barna's latest report, they are more open to God than their parents. What does this mean for the church? That's today on The Reclaimed Leader. Welcome to The Reclaimed Leader, a podcast by two pastors trying to lead their churches through revitalization and change. Their mission, to share their journey with you so it might help you in yours. And now, here, please welcome our hosts, Jason Tucker and Jesse Skiffington. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 256 of The Reclaim Leader. I'm Jason Tucker here again with Jesse Skiffington. How's it going, Jesse? Jason, I'm I'm here. I'm here and we're talking and that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, we've been kind of uh, kidding around about this the last handful of episodes, but we all have a lot going on right now. It's just like full on. We're back in and it feels like um, maybe it's we kind of got out of conditioning for a fast pace in ministry or something. I don't know what, but I feel uh, stretched a little more this fall than and maybe it's because the lot is opening up and there's a lot of opportunity in front of us. And so, uh, but anyway, enjoying what we're doing and excited to see what God is up to in our churches. And, and that's a good thing. Um, and as we're thinking about what this next season of ministry life is really what the next decade is like, uh, it's super important that we stop and have conversations like we're going to have today where we're thinking about what are the next generations like how do they see Jesus? How do they see the church? What what are the implications for our ministry? So we're going to be talking a little bit uh, next gen again, but in a really kind of a, a specific lane. So tell us where we're going today, Jason. Yeah. So hot off the press today, I saw Barna's report on Generation Z. It's the largest report or research project they said that they've ever undertaken, which I think is probably saying something. Mm -hmm. And it was a look at global teenagers response to basically what are they like? What do they believe about Jesus, the Bible and the Christian faith? And I found it fascinating. And I think it's this kind of research, which, you know, thank you, Barna, for this kind of research, because I think it really helps you to see from a 30,000 foot view what's going on when maybe you're just seeing one little piece of the puzzle, this I think helps you understand. And then how as a church, are you going to, if you really care about the next generation, you want to reach them, you have to know what reaches them. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. It's, I think we forget, or we think, well, you know, kids are kids and it's the same. And probably a lot, a lot, a lot of the time that's true. But I think with our generation, next generation, Gen Z, uh, the under 21s right now, I think, I, I think they're different, and I think we really need to consider how they view things in order to reach them. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Like, super important for us to be in that thought process all the time of how are we connecting, not with only the people that are here, but who maybe are our friends and neighbors around us or the generations to come. And so um, we're going to dive into this and just kind of try to wrap our heads around some of these things. And for me, I don't know about you, Jason, but it's sort of like I... I need a kind of cumulative impact of understanding of the generations that have come after me through my personal experience, through things at the church, uh, through things like a, a Barner report, other kinds of things that kind of contribute to my big picture understanding of a generation. It's kind of it, it's kind of overwhelming, really, to stop and think about how a whole generation ticks and what that means for us. So uh, hopefully there's a few things in here today that can help you think about uh, those that are coming after us and how how we can reach out to them. 
Well, as we said a couple episodes ago, because I'm feeling the pressure of having a senior, you know, now yeah. not too many more marbles left. Right. Um, is I don't think we can afford to wait on this. I think we really need to understand it now because I think the time is now to really help reach kids. I don't know what's going on with teenagers in your area, Jesse, but I know a lot of them are really, they're coming back to groups or coming back to community. They are trying to find ways to be involved and to do things. I've, I've gotten a lot of, a lot of kids and their parents asking, Hey, how can my kid get involved in this or this? I just think there's a real hunger for that. Um, and, and I think, Knowing what their sort of preconceived, for lack of a better word, baggage is about church and faith and Jesus, the better that we can sort of unpack that and help them to see what a lifelong faith might look like and why that matters for their life. I mean, it's what we would do for any generation. I just think uh, we know we have a good sense of the adult generations because we've been living with each other for a while. (laughs) But I think getting to know the youngest generation uh, is going to be critical. The name of the report. Uh, again, this is from Barna, and you can access it. You could purchase this report on Barna's website. It's called The Open Generation, How Teens Around the World Relate to Jesus. Again, a global study. And I'm going to quote a few times from the report. But just as an intro, I like their this quote. They said, listening was part of Jesus's evangelism strategy. As teenagers... The silent generation, born between 1928 and 1945, would have been expected to be seen but not heard. Hmm. Now, a new generation of teens expects older generations to listen to what they have to say and act upon principle. Listening is the love language of today's generation. Maybe it's time we listen too. Hmm. So, what is Gen Z like? I've got I've got three of them in my house. I got two teenagers and a, a preteen. And I, I'll just say this. They're hilarious. I just find them really funny. I find them really fun. Um, a, di- very, a different sense of humor than me. Have <laughs> you noticed that about what kids think is funny? It's like, what? You think that's funny? And, you know, I, you don't want to watch Tommy Boy again? You know, like, but that's not <laughs> funny to you, right? <laughs> I don't get it. But um, very funny, a lot of humor coming through digital devices and uh, TikTok and, you know, memes coming through that they just think are funny or or whatever. There's a lot. Obviously, they're digital natives, so they they tend to binge, right? They're they're, they're used to be able to binge any sort of TV show that they want the entire season. They are into, of course, social media. They're multi-screeners, so they'll be working on the computer while their phone's there, while the TV's on, and it doesn't seem to distract them. They seem to be able to focus. And um, and I would say this. I've noticed they're increasingly discerning about media, which I find it almost a paradox. It's like they're they're in it more than any of us, but they're also becoming a little more discerning. Like, my kids don't just trust what comes across social media. In fact, they'll tell you they probably don't trust it, which is interesting because I, you know, a lot of churches, if your strategy is we're going to reach them through social media, I mean, obviously that's a good idea, but at the same time, you got to know that they're skeptical of any sort of truth claims that are coming across our device. I just find that really fascinating. I don't know. What's, what's your experience <laughs> of 
uh, you know, of your kids or their friends or what you're seeing sure. in your church? No, I think you're you're right on. I mean, the, the the water they swim in is the the world that we live in today. So they you know they don't know anything different. They don't know the the age before the internet. They don't know what it was like when we had you know phones that sat in the center of our home and had to connect through those. And um, for for our family and for our church you know community, we find families trying to figure out how to navigate together the healthy boundaries with their technology, trying to figure out what that looks like, actually trying to learn from our kids sometimes when it comes to those kinds of things. Um, and working through that together is, is, a, can be a challenge. And so I think that's, that's really the thing that I've noticed is, um, that I hear parents coming and saying, I'm not sure how to talk with my kids about the things that are going on. How do I do that? And, um, for whatever reason, the languages we speak seem to be pretty different. So maybe that's one of my observations is that this generation really is unique. And, um, and so we got to kind of learn to speak their language a little bit, or at least to understand it so we can have good communication. I've also noticed again, a real hunger for physical connection. I, maybe this is just in our community that, that we live in, but I'm noticing even with my son, who's in eighth grade, he and his buddies are having sleepovers. I mean, I, you know, you hit a certain age and maybe you don't do as many sleepovers, but these kids and they're largely, they're just all buddies from school. We've hosted a couple and this is what they do. They, they just like eat snacks, stay up. They, you know, watch YouTube and laugh and go to bed at three in the morning. And it's like, but there's such a hunger for it. Like they're constantly asking. And it's like, dude, I mean, you can't just do a sleepover every time you go to the <laughs> That's day right. school. Yeah. Like, Callie and I joke around about managing our kids' social schedules. You're like, <laughs> man, right. you guys have a lot. But there's that, again, that desire to be out and about or together uh, and enjoying things. And so that is, I think, is, is a healthy sign. Like to me, I go, that's good. I want to encourage that. And um, I've noticed also just, you know, coaching Little League and doing some other things that there is a desire even from parents to push their kids kind of back outside, give them more freedom. There was that kind of, and there's still some of these things of helicoptering going on and snowplow parenting and stuff, but I feel like the hands are coming off that a little bit and our kids have a little more freedom, uh, hopefully within reason. Um, and then we're leveraging technology to stay connected like a, like a watch phone or, uh, you know, something like that. But I think that's a good sign that kids want to be together. They want community. They desire that. And that their community naturally is gathered around their points of interest, things like YouTube and funny memes and stuff that we, Jason, we just don't get. Yeah, exactly. We're like, what? What happened? <laughs> um, from the from Barna's report, a uh, couple of quotes here. Said this global research on the spirituality of teenagers shows that this rising generation is open and inclusive. I think that's not surprising. Seeking truth. Maybe that is surprising. Authenticity and change. They are open to different perspectives, different faiths, and different cultures. As we've explored the profile that emerges from the aggregated data, we have used words like optimistic, engaged, malleable, curious, authentic, inclusive, and collaborative. Yeah, that sound, that reads right to me from what I'm seeing in kids, but also a very different generation with very different traits than like, for example, our generations when we were growing up. Um, when you hear those words about this generation, what are some things that, are there some things that excite you in that or things that worry you? 
Yeah, no, I, I, there's a few things in there that I think are awesome. You know, when we are concerned with trying to find out how things actually are and what really is true behind things, rather than just taking things at face value and immediately adopting them, I think that's a really healthy trait. Um, I think when we're willing to listen and engage with other people who don't think or act or, you know, vote like us or believe like us, I think that can be a really healthy thing. Uh, and you put those two together, if we're if, if young people are really wanting to anchor themselves on something that is true and lasting and are willing to investigate and learn and grow along the way, uh, that seems like a recipe for success for our young people to, to grow up in a in a less defensive way. Um, but still kind of have a trajectory of pursuing things that, that really are, are fun or, you know, kind of, um, have a ring of truth to them and are, are not just the, the latest fad or something. So I find that encouraging. I've also noticed that their friend groups are more malleable. Hmm. I, I noticed that it, I felt like maybe in a time when I was growing up or going through high school, friend groups were sort of like what they were for a while. And this doesn't seem, they seem to be sort of people would seem to be jumping between friend groups and open to engaging with other friend groups a little more than I've seen in the past. I have no research to back that up other than I think it confirms the idea of malleable, curious, authentic, inclusive, collaborative. And think about how they've experienced school. They've been trained to be this way, right? They, lots of group projects, a lot of collaboration, a lot of, um, engagement. And um, what was fascinating to Barna and I think and to me as well was they said they're amazed at their overall optimism since these qualities emerged despite this study having been conducted during a time when teens were living through a global pandemic. Hmm. Now, I don't know, Jesse, do you think it's they've seen the stress of their parents' generation over politics? over the pandemic, over pandemic guidelines, over whatever. And they've seen that. And do you think it's like, maybe like, we don't want, we don't want to be like that. Yeah. Maybe pushing back against yeah. that. Maybe even unconsciously, they don't know that it's what's happening, but they're saying, no, oh, that's not a world that we want to live in. I think there's something, I, again, there, we'd have to find some study to back this up, but when a generation has a defining moment, like a, the pandemic or like a world war or like a, you know, um, whatever, you know, fill in the blank with like a, a defining uh, event or moment in time, it does leave a mark. And I think they live um, in response to that. Like think about the depression era, the generation that came out of that and their, their, you know, their commitment to saving every little resource. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's not a surprise that something was going on then in this new generation that's coming up that will potentially they'll carry with them. That will be a mark of their generation. I'm sure there'll be some hard things about that, but that list um, seems like there's some, there's a lot there that it can be uh, helpful and, and good for their future. So that is exciting, I think. Well, and just think about too, if they have such a value around community or such a big part of them, because think about they're experiencing community with people in person as well as online, and it's seamless for them. It's the same friends that they're sort of engaging with in both of these ways. But in a way, you could say that they're kind of hyper engaged with their friend group because there's no shutting off the friend group, really. It's it's constantly going whether they're physically present or not. And so I guess my question that I ask as a result of that is what are the implications for our church's ministries to to kids or to teenagers in particular with that in mind? 
how do we make our experience of their faith groups seamless between digital and personal or in-person ministry? I don't have an answer. I wish I had yeah. an answer for that, yeah. but I think that's a, a question that I'm asking. Yeah, become a YouTube star, Jason, is what you need to do, <laughs> right? I hear them talking about these people, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. Yeah. No, no, they're really awesome. They, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm like, okay. Um, so I do think there is, yeah, there's room for us to think about how do we how do we meet them there in that reality? And um, what do we uniquely have to offer as a church community? We have a, a place for you to come and be together yeah. with other people. And I do think there's value around being a multi-generational community that these young people can come into contact with and engage with because they do see themselves more as a a valid voice at the table, or uh, I have something to offer, contribute um, here. If we're able to receive that well with wisdom and discretion, because young people are still young people, right? Their ideas are, are, aren't always the right ones. But if we can invite them in and to participate in ways that are, are um, ring true with how they how they see the, their lives, the church, and those kinds of things, I think it can be, there's an opportunity for us to engage this generation in a way that can create faith that lasts a lifetime. So that is encouraging. Yeah. What was that? So, um, gosh, it's been a while now, but we did the whole growing young Mm -hmm. series of podcasts and we interviewed, um, the co-author of that. And, and we were talking about, I I know one of the points of emphasis in the book was handing the keys to the next generation. That's Mm -hmm. always stuck with me. The idea that you're not just giving them say you're actually giving them control in some ways not that not that you're totally abdicating responsibility yeah. Yeah. from that but in a way you're you're letting them move forward with some level of authority or some level of autonomy and trust i think trust is the word i'm looking for yeah yeah and i think there's a difference between getting kids to participate in the life of the church in a kind of what can sometimes feel as a condescending patronizing way where they're sort of the the representative young people or kids for a moment on the stage or something and really including them fully in the life of the church. And that's a growing edge still for us. But right now we have a fifth grader who's one of our regular drummers in our worship team. And it may, he's awesome. He's really great. In fact, uh, Larry, who helps with the music here at Marine View, he said he's actually better than some of our adult regular drummers. So he's very talented kid. And instead of just seeing him as a kid up there and we go, Oh, isn't that cute? Like, He's a he's an actively engaged part of our life, but in a in a in a way that was natural and already a continuation of things that he was already doing or passionate about. And so how do we help young people find their way into the life of the church in ways that make sense for them that line up with their passions or their abilities or their giftedness and you treat them as if they're just, uh, any other participant to lead or to to be a part of the welcome or greeting or whatever it is that that just that are natural and not forced. So that for us yeah. is one of those things we're always looking to do, but we don't want them ever to feel like they're our special project that we're working on. And so like there's a balance there, I think. Yeah. So I think a great example, because then I think that's exactly what I mean about handing the keys. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that's what they're talking about, like yeah, yeah. giving kids meaningful things in the life of the church, not just uh, sort of the dog and pony show that yeah. I think accidentally happens yeah. when kids yeah, are it's just well intentioned. It really is. Yeah. And sometimes if you're in preschool, that's just <laughs> you're not going to give the keys to the preschooler, right? <laughs> but <laughs> right. it is cute. It's awesome. We love seeing the kids up there. But then you as they, me, get they older, take the yeah. keys anyway. Oh, man, they do preschoolers. Take the yeah, they they sure run do. over everybody. Anyway. Um, okay. So 
a little, you know, just thinking a little about what they're like. By the way, this is the same process that I that we do in our church whenever we're thinking about any program that we're doing or what we're doing, like who are we trying to reach? What you got to study them. Like, wh- what are they like? What what moves them? What sort of baggage do they bring? What so that you can help bring the gospel to bear in their life in a way that connects, in a way that makes sense. So you could do exercises like this to reach any generation that you want. So yes, like, what are they like? Mm-hmm. Um, what do they like? What do they do? So next part, what do they believe about Jesus, the Bible and church, according to the research? This is the really interesting stuff to me because it's, um, it's, it's mixed. And um, maybe that's expected from this generation that it would be a bit mixed, but you'll see what I mean. Said so the findings in this first volume of the report, show that the number one thing young people say they know about Jesus is that he was crucified. Which I think is pretty meaningful. In fact, um, the report says this suggests the church globally has done a good job communicating that Jesus died for us. However, teens feel less sure that they can have a personal relationship with Jesus and that he is active in the world today. Hmm. It's mixed, right? So, I mean, in a way... That's awesome that one of the number one things that global teens think about Jesus is they know that he was crucified. That's significant. It's not just, oh, he was good or, oh, he was loving. And those things certainly come up in the report, as you'll see. But I I find that encouraging in a way. Not encouraging that they don't understand the personal relationship piece. But I don't know. I think there's a lot of adults that don't understand that either. So I don't know if it's particularly a generational thing or it's an overall church messaging thing. Yeah, it could be. I mean, but, you know, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? This is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, yeah. that he was raised again from the dead. So, man, so step one, we've got the Jesus died part down. What are the implications of that? You know, something we can explore with them. I wonder if the personal relationship piece is um, something of a shift from uh, sort of the buddy Jesus of the 90s and whatever versions of that existed, that sort of Jesus as our friend and 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 a desire for something more transcendent is if there's a shift going on there and um, trying to understand how do we talk about our individual life with God in relationship with Jesus? How, what is the language that we should use or can use around that that they can relate to? Is it still that language of a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or is there is, is there something of the community-based language of the New Testament that can really be helpful for them. And that's, we've started to notice some of that. It's, you know, when you're reading uh, the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament and we use, we see the word you, it's almost always you all. Like it's, he's writing to the community. We read it so individualized. So there might be something healthy uh, of a move out of a purely individualistic view of the world to more of a community-based view that can be useful as we help people think about what does it mean to be, a follower of, of Jesus Christ, yes, it's a personal relationship, but it's always in the context of community. It's always rooted in the community of Jesus, and it's never just a one-off thing that you go and do by yourself. I think that's a tremendous value that actually resonates or lines up with who they are and some of what they believe is important. Yeah. Um, as they were you know, surveying the these teenagers, they found that 22% would identify as committed Christians that and that means not just belief that but they believe that they have a, a personal relationship with Jesus 22% and 
nominal Christians, like kind of vaguely or culturally, uh, culturally Christian, that's 52%. That's, that's a high, high number. But here's the interesting thing. Only 8% of those were considered Bible engaged, where they actually read the Bible on a regular basis and tried to apply it to their life. So yeah. Again, I think this probably mirrors older generations. I don't think this is anything new, at least based on what I've seen in a mainline denomination. Yeah. And and a lot of the conversations I've had that are been helpful to understand what some of the younger generations believe, I think kind of comes down to almost a Pascal's wager version of faith. It's better to believe in God than not, because I don't want anything bad to happen if and when I do die. And so they're they're not agnostic really, but they're also it's not a fully articulated life in Christ and spiritual disciplines and it's it's more of a, a yeah, I'll be on board with the God thing. That's that's fine. Um sure. It, love is a good thing. You know, so it's yeah, like yeah. how do you help take the take that next step in a little closer into that sort of personal walk and and around, you know, sort of the disciplined faith or something. But the fact that they're open or that they're at least not going walking away or something, you know, that's encouraging, right? Well, yeah, and and although eight percent were Bible engaged, sixty-two percent Bible open. Yeah. In other words, open to learning more th- about the Bible or through the Bible. So it's not that they're against the Bible. In fact, what this report shows, I think, in big neon sign is teens are open to Jesus, they're open to the Bible. And the third thing is they're open or they have a real conviction around confront confronting injustice. Yeah. Those are those are like three big takeaways from the report. Right. I'm yeah, not I, surprised yeah. about the third. I'm a little more surprised about the first two. Yeah. Well, and I think the justice thing is again, it's an entry point for us into conversation about who Jesus is, what he came to do and be for us, and who we believe Jesus is as he comes back to make things right, to to, you know, the things that we know ought to be that bother our hearts. Uh, in the end, um, what we know ought to be will be. And so I think that is a way in with the gospel. Um, and we might not always agree with the application of the specific application of justice in our world today or their version or whatever, but to be open to a conversation of whatever that is inside you that telling you that this is wrong or ought not be, listen to that, that we got to explore that. What does that mean? Because the gospel does speak to that too. And I think on the openness to scripture front, that's, that's just awesome to hear because I think what what maybe is missing is an understanding of what is the role of the Bible in the work of God in our world. How is God's activity and the Bible connected? And I don't know that many people can articulate a clear response to that. And so for us to be able to say, no, this is this is the role of the Bible in God's activity, his saving activity in the world. And here's here's why that's good news and why you should consider reading it and understanding it for yourself. So I, I love that. I think there's those open doors are fantastic. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, even bigger numbers around justice. So 24% were considered justice motivated, which meant they had not only the conviction, but they had the the will to do something about justice. 24%, that's a pretty high number. And then 51% justice oriented, where maybe they lacked, you know, maybe they weren't as, you know, kind of hardcore, I'm going to do something about it. But they all believe that justice is an important issue in their lives. And I think that, again, this has huge implications. Again, as a, maybe a segue or a bridge to talk about the gospel and what real justice is. And I think it's a 
interesting conversation to ask teenagers the question, do you believe that there's such a thing as a an absolute truth? Um, because I gather most would say, well, no. Uh, this all reminds me, we were just having a conversation last night. We have a men's group that's looking at mere Christianity. And we went round and round on uh, this idea. So like even a lot of the guys aren't of one mind on this. Is there absolute truth? And if so, who decides what that is? And, you know, we talked, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's so I think it's a and justice is a really, it, justice is a really great uh, lens through which to have that conversation. Because yes. if justice is just up to whoever happens to be in power at the time, they get to decide what is right and wrong and how we ought to be. Uh, that's a scary version of justice, right? If we don't have a shared external source of what is or ought to be, you know, then it's just the justice of the day. So it could be right wing justice or left wing justice or Nazi justice or, you know, American justice or uh, the most powerful justice. Right. So I've, I I've found that to be a really great way into a conversation about where does your sense of justice come from and why should that be there at all? And I'm sure C.S. Lewis has a million things to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Well. But yeah, I mean, so good. So there is an entry point into how did how did you arrive at this this you know, this longing for justice. And what does that mean about you and us and the nature of our existence? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Just some light conversation. I but, know I'm getting a little preachy over on my end. Here. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Um, so here's what they believe about Jesus. And, and I'll just quote directly. It's rare that teens think poorly of Jesus. And this is across all religions. It's rare that teens think poorly of Jesus. Most teenagers around the world have a positive perception of him. They're even saying even those in different religions don't necessarily have a negative view. They might have a neutral view instead, which is really fascinating. Like they, they're they more inclined if they are another religion to sort of shrug their shoulders and like, eh, you know, I don't know. Jesus, he's all right. You know, like I don't, but not, not in a really angry or negative way. It says about half of all teens across faith groups describe Jesus as loving, 49%. That's a win. <laughs> 40, almost 50% of teens around the globe across faith groups and believe he offers hope, 46%, and cares about people, 43%. The global impression of Jesus is that he is trustworthy, generous, wise, peaceful, and the glowing list goes on. Hmm. that's awesome i don't know i get really excited about that yeah i well and again talking about open doors right and um the opportunity to kind of meet them in that and say you know what you're you're absolutely right you're yeah. absolutely right about who jesus is and what he came to do and be for us and, and that is exciting well and just the, the idea i think i wonder if it is connected to that sense or that belief that jesus died you know or that articulation of christianity that it has to do with something of jesus died jesus died so you know how what does that mean do, you know how do they understand that but it, i wonder if it is connected to their sense of jesus is loving jesus is caring jesus gives himself away for others so um yeah, yeah really cool i mean you know there's there's work to be done because there's not necessarily a correlation with the gospel, but there is a positive view of Jesus. It says teens are drawn to the idea of a gentle Jesus mm. who cares for and shows mercy to people. They're less inclined toward an image of Jesus that places him above 
or apart from humanity. It says, teens are attracted to a Christ who is among people and who shows them grace. Hmm. Jesus being merciful is the number one trait that um, teens gravitate to. Hmm. Interesting, right? Yeah. I wonder if they're longing for or hungry for some of that for themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Or like in, in a world where they see like no mercy, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it and we seems see so this. countercultural. This is the part of the kingdom of God that we would like to see in our world, right? This more compassion, more mercy, more understanding. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, they're a little bit, um, I would say confused, but just mixed on how they understand Jesus to be. So 47% believe he was crucified. Only 50% among teens who identify as Christians say Jesus was resurrected. Hmm. 50% of teens who identify as Christians, only 50% say he was resurrected. Not even half, 44%, say Jesus was God in human form. Hmm. So, a little work to do. <laughs> a little work right? to do. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it says, Generation wide, there's little grasp or of or belief in teachings about Jesus's incarnation, resurrection, and present day relevance. Yeah, even as teens applaud principles of his life and character. Right. Well, I mean, it makes total sense, right? That the yeah. sort of the personal spiritual experience is valued over sort of this bigger picture truth or something. And I do think I think anytime something like this, the, the divinity of Christ or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is is sort of set aside. It, it tells me that there's a sort of a more of an inward focus on what I what what it means for me and what I get out of it and yeah. how I can you know so um, it's not a surprise and yet I if half of people who identify as Christian are in that camp I mean there's some might mean that we haven't done as good of a job as we thought about sharing the basic basics of the gospel um, and so uh, I don't know it tells me we have some work to do right there. And again, I think the implications or how you could follow up on that is it's sort of like I'm imagining the church walking us alongside teenagers mm-hmm. saying, Let, let's talk more about this Jesus you admire so much. Mm-hmm. Let, me, yeah. let me share more about how he's impacted my life and what, what he says he wants to do in your life and the lives of, you know, and for our world. Like, like I feel like that's the connector. Like, you admire Jesus. Do you want to know more? Um, okay, so here's the bad news. <laughs> Barna's research is clear that globally, teens do not see Christians as positively as they see Jesus. In fact, uh, let's see, what was this number here? Um, well, here's the quote. Teens of all backgrounds tend to celebrate Jesus's compassion and mercy, and they want to know more about him. Still, there are some concerning gaps, such as the one between the reputation of Christians and the reputation of Christ. Yeah. And Christians haven't exactly been putting their best foot forward in recent years. And um, gosh, we don't even need to go into that. You just all know it. Yeah. <laughs> You've all seen I mean, it with your own eyes. When, when, when people are talking about, you know, the other stats that we've looked at about people you know, pastors leaving ministry or strongly considering leaving ministry. I think the same would be true for, for, for all of us as pastors. It's not Jesus that's getting in the way for us. It's the, the church itself, the Christian community, or those that claim to be followers of Jesus. It's just the weight of bearing that, um, the, all the embarrassingness of, of it out there. And, um, 
trying to say, well, that's not, I'm not like that, or we're not like that, or that's not what it's really like. It's just, it's exhausting. And I think it wears, wears people down. So, um, you know, for, for that younger generation to admire Jesus, but kind of look at the, the Christian movement as a whole or Christians in general and go, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think it makes sense with what the experience has been these last, last years. Yeah. And I think kind of to sort of tie a bow on, uh, this part of the report is again, Christians, it says Christian teens in general, they want their faith to be a part of their everyday lives. They want, they want to be infused in their lives and communities. It says about two in five say it's very true that they want to follow Jesus in a way that connects to broader culture without isolating themselves. Mm. Like you said earlier, it's not even as much about individual faith as it is about communal faith. And maybe in a way that's getting back to what was intended in the first place, right? Jesus doesn't talk about individual faith anywhere near as much as he talks about communal faith and um, the body of Christ. So I think there are some positives to take from that. I think let's talk about the implications. So we sure. kind of talked about a lot of stuff and what does this all mean for our ministries? I thought of one idea and that is it's going to be about actions of the church, not just convictions for this generation. They want to see that you are loving justice and showing mercy and walking humbly with your God. They they want to see it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're not doing it and making and including them in the doing of it, then we're going to miss it. We're just going to miss it. And it's probably not just their generation as well. I think it's, it's everybody. Right. And there's a question that's asked in the, at the end of the, report that I thought was really good. It says, when it comes to Christianity in particular, is it more important to a teen that they know the faith is true or that it is good? Hmm. That's kind of a mic drop question, right? I mean, obviously we want both, but you're (laughs) thinking about, right? right, What comes first? I think it's good comes first Mm -hmm. because their whole notion of truth is different. I think that's going to take some time, but I think they're not going to trust that Jesus is the one true God um, until they see how good he is mm-hmm. and how good his followers are. I don't know. That's just a hunch. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And and it's not that there aren't apologetics and, and reason and things to get into, but I think anytime we begin to get into the mode of of what can maybe is perceived as attempting to convince. Um, I've noticed that's where the kind of the brakes get pumped mm-hmm. for people and they go, why are you, tr- why are you trying to convince me? And instead of just pointing to, like you said, that kind of the grace, the goodness, the love of God, the activity of God in our world, his commitment to justice in the end, you know, like uh, lifting those things up and trusting that the truth will ring and resonate deeply in our hearts rather than trying to, here's the five reasons why this is, you can believe this or something. Not that that's inappropriate. I mean, it's helpful to have those conversations, but what are we leading with? Are yeah. we leading with that, that sort of convincing approach uh, about the truth of who Jesus is? Or are we pointing to who, what, who Jesus is, what he does for us, the God's goodness and love that kind of uh, are embodied in Christ and um, shown to us. And I think that's what I hear you saying is, is the, the thing to lead with, with this younger generation. And then to show them that we don't, we just talk about it. We don't play church and go through the motions. We really try to live what we claim to believe. 
And that, and I would say, I'm guessing that most of our listeners here in your churches all have amazing ministry organizations that you support financially or that you're involved with in a voluntary basis or whatever. But how do we expose our young people to that activity in the life of the church and say, here's why we're committed to Olive Crest, which is a foster uh, care licensing uh, organization out here in the Northwest that we partner with. We care about young people. This is how we get involved. So having those organizations share, uh, be available, and to invite our kids to be a part of some of that activity too, in ways that are appropriate at their level and a level of commitment that they can give, but showing them that we mean it and that we're living it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to your point, apologetics has a place, but it's not first place. It might not even be fifth place. It the, It's really, it's leading with the love of Jesus Christ first, Yeah. which I don't know, that sounds way too biblical. But no, uh, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, Alpha, if you're ever curious about what something like that looks like, and the Alpha course is a great example, yeah. right? You start with the story of God and, and lots of room for questions and wrestling and doubts and I don't believe any of this and all that. And you, you begin to then after a, some relational credibility and uh, kind of knowing that this is a place where we can talk about these things, then you get to some of the reasons why we believe what we believe. But that comes later out, out of the context of a trusted relationship and an understanding of just what it is, what is it that Christians believe? And so when I'm speaking to a group of people that where I know there are people who are not believers in the room, a lot of times that happens around a memorial service or a funeral or something. I, I don't, I, I'm very careful with how I talk about what Christians believe. So when I read 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, right? In a twinkling of an eye, the trumpet sounds right. I, I, I talk about what, why is Paul writing what he's writing? And then I say, and here's what Christians believe. So if you're a Christian, you know, I'm going to articulate this for you. But if you're not, this will help you understand a little bit more how we think and how we function. And and so I think even just getting to a point where we're not assuming that everybody is on board or understands and trying to use some more a language that invites people to understand the story without um, getting too preachy at them about it. I, I don't know. I think that's just a balancing act that we're always having to walk right now. Well, hey, everyone, I know that um, this is a lot of stuff that we just kind of went through. But again, uh, we're processing it, too. And sadly, there are so many churches who are not even having this conversation. I just want to encourage you, and I hope it inspires you. Talk about this with your leadership. If you don't have any kids in your church, I mean, what are you going to do about it? What are the conversations you need to have to bring more young people, to bring the next generation in? and? Um, are you talking with your your elders? Are you talking with uh, those who are helping out in your kids' ministry? Start talking about this stuff. You get a better shot at faithfulness, in my opinion. I think if you ignore it, like it maybe it'll just go away, or maybe kids will just sort of naturally flock here. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's a mistake, and and I think it'll set set you back. But more importantly, you'll lose out on the opportunity to share the gospel with the next generation. So. Hang in there. Uh, have yeah. these guys. I hope this helps you and inspires you. Again, I encourage you to go purchase the full report from Barnett. It's really, really good. I think really insightful. And and honestly, having the report in front of you as you talk with your elders or your leadership gives you a lot more credibility than just, oh, here's what I heard from a podcast. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I think you led us through a really good conversation. Those three questions. What are they like? What do they believe? What are the implications? And really just asking them as questions to your leadership team so that they can be part of that thought process too of just thinking it through. 
and uh, instead of telling them what they should think. So sometimes <laughs> as leaders, we, we go, well, I have all the solutions already, but invite people into that conversation so that we can all kind of think and dream and wrestle together. Sounds good. Well, hey, everyone, thanks so much for listening. As we say every time, ministry is hard. It is so much better when we do it together. Take care and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Reclaimed Leader. Join us next time for more insights, interviews, and resources to help you in your leadership journey.